So Revelation chapter chapter 19, and we want to talk about the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we will see that contrasted with the great supper of God. Remember that we've seen time and again how John introduces a theme and then he returns to it. And he tells us about it in a more complex way or with greater details or he uses a different way of talking about it, a different illustration to talk about the same thing. And so when we read the Revelation, we don't read it in linear fashion. It's not chronological. It's not one, two, three, or ABC. But instead, uh, it's circular. It comes back to itself. It returns to themes and it develops them in different ways. That's not a That's not a slight against this being read literally. Instead, it's a function of its figurative nature. By the very nature of the Revelation, it is apocalyptic in genre. It is figurative. It deals in the imaginative. And that's John's purpose in writing. He wants to use this figurative or imaginative language to describe to us the visionary experience that he had. Remember that John is writing about things that are far-fetched and fanciful and hard for the human mind to comprehend. These are things that are almost too great for us to understand. And so John is employing the best language that he has under the power of the illuminating Holy Spirit to record these things in a way that they might be comprehended. And as he does, he's building upon all of the language of the Old Testament, particularly the writings of the prophets throughout the time before and during and after after the exile of Israel and Judah. And so John is taking all of these things into consideration as he brings this word, this vision to us to tell us about the things that are and the things that are soon to take place. And that's important as we see chapter 19 and we we see John tell us about these two different these two different banquets or these two different suppers. There's a marriage supper of the lamb. And the guests of this supper are those who belong to God, those who overcome by their faith in the Lord Jesus, those who keep their witness for Christ, those who have been sealed by His Spirit and marked by His power, those who have been counted in His temple, those who are among the unnumbered tribes of the people of God. Those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb are those who belong to Jesus. And that great marriage supper is contrasted with what John calls the great supper of God. A supper that is laid before the world, before the the fowl of the air that prey upon rotting flesh. And it consists of those who have opposed God and who have opposed God's people as they are conquered by the risen and reigning Jesus. So let's read together. Revelation chapter 19. John says, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just, for He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. 
And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of a mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, pure, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on that written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. In chapter 18 and verse 20, an angel gave the instruction, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Those for whom God has sided in his eschatological judgment are the people of God, those who are the saints and apostles and prophets. Those terms are neither individual classes of Christian leaders or followers, nor Christians from particular time periods or with particular experiences. Or rather, they are indicative of all of God's people from all times and all places. The people of God, those who for centuries have longed for vindication, those who have cried out from beneath the altar of God, as we heard in chapter 6, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? 
The people of God will have finally had their prayers answered as God rules in their behalf and rains down judgment upon those who have opposed him and his people. The conquering of God's people has been announced in stages. Before this picture of victory in chapter 18 and verse 20, John wrote in chapter 11 and verse 15 about the blasting of the seventh trumpet. There he heard loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. This week in Vacation Bible School, obviously we are talking about kingdoms. Here we are with a castle behind us. We we talk about kingdoms. This is the very thing we've been trying to teach our children to help them understand that there are two kingdoms or two systems or or two ways of governance in the world that behind the scenes, on the spiritual side of things, there's a kingdom of God that is ruled by God. It's filled with light. Its inhabitants and citizens are those who belong to the Lamb. And there's a kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of this world, John calls it. And the kingdom of this world is ruled by Satan and it lashes out every opportunity it can against God and his people and it will one day be defeated. We must decide which kingdom we will dwell in. John said in chapter 14 and verse 8 that a second angel flew overhead announcing the destruction of the spiritual system of evil opposition to God and to God's people saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. In chapter 16 and verse 17, when a seventh angel poured out the seventh bowl of the wrath of God, once again the certain victory of God and his people over the enemies of God and his people was seen when a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. Now John expands the depiction of this certain triumph of God for his people by painting for us visions of contrasting banquets. First, we are shown the vindication of the bride of the Lamb, the people of God, and a celebration of her union with God at the marriage supper of the Lamb, an invitation to which promises blessing. And then we see the vengeance of God poured out on Babylon, that whorish bride of the dragon who was aligned with the beast and the false prophet, and a consumption of the flesh of her members defeated in the battle at Armageddon where the great supper of God will take place. John begins this depiction by telling us that he heard what seemed to be a loud, the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. The scene depicted in chapter 19 verses 1 through 5 is a loud one. There is a roar everywhere one turns in these verses. There are specific announcements to be heard, but they come in the midst of a din of noise. It might be like being at Bryant-Denny or Jordan-Hare in the fall. You go to those great stadiums and you can hear announcements being made over the PA system, but you can also hear the roar of 100,000 of college football's finest fans. John hears a roar in the heavenly realms, but through the roar of the heavenly realms is a clear word of praise. The inhabitants of heaven laud and cheer the judgment and justice of God. They begin with a singular acclamation inherent to which is its own definition. Hallelujah! The word needs no translation. 
It is never translated in any language. Every language of earth simply transliterates the word hallelujah because the word itself speaks prayer and praise and adoration and glory. One hears the word and knows that something is being exalted. And the something being exalted is God himself. Those in the heavenly realms call on John and on those who follow the Lamb to praise the Lord. They make clear that God possesses and should go on in possession of salvation, glory, and power because his judgments are true and just. At many points, John and his hearers have been reminded that God's judgments against Babylon and those who align with her is not without solid foundation. John wants us to know that when God finally judges his opponents, it is not vindictive, it is not rash, it is not without foundation, it is not unjust. So John said in chapter 15 and verse 3 that they heard those who had conquered the beast and its image sing the song of the Lamb. And here's what they said. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. In chapter 16 and verse 7, when a third angel poured out a third bowl of a plague upon the fresh water of earth that turned it to blood, the altar itself cried out, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Now we are again reminded that God's outpouring of judgment and vindication of his saints through the conquering of his enemies does not come rashly or unreasonably but is measured. It is a balanced response. The response of a just God to those who have insisted on rebelling against him, spurning every warning, trial, and plague that he brought into their lives to pierce their hard hearts. Sometimes we look at the Old Testament and we see the vengeance of a just God And we say, how can this be equivalent to a God who loves, is gracious, is kind? Maybe we come to the revelation and we hear this word that God is going to destroy his enemies. In fact, God seems to delight in the destruction of his enemies. He announces and causes there to be gathered a great number of birds of prey that will feast upon the flesh of those who have opposed him at the last day. How do we square this with the love and grace and mercy of God? And the reality is that the way we square this, the way we we resolve this, the way these things live in harmony is to recognize that there can be no real justice. There can be no real justice of God that vindicates those who trust in him without vanquishing those who oppose him. If God deals with our sins in the sacrifice of his blessed and beloved son, Jesus Christ, then it is incumbent upon us to trust in that sacrifice for our salvation and redemption. If we are trusting in, clinging to, holding fast to the salvation offered in Jesus, then God is just in looking upon us and setting us free, pardoning us, because we no longer bear the weight of our sin. The weight of our sin has been borne by our Savior. But if... If we look upon the beauty of his son, 
If we gaze upon the sacrifice of Christ, if we consider what Jesus has done for us in pouring out his blood, in having his body broken, and we spurn his gracious offer of salvation, our sin remains upon us. We bear the weight of our rebellion. And God looks upon us and is right in judging us because there is no one to advocate on our behalf. The justice of God demands that he is both kind and gracious and patient and long-suffering and merciful. And at the same time, as Ephesians or Exodus 34, 6 and 7 reminds us, he does not clear the guilty. John goes to great lengths to remind us that God is just when he pours out judgment upon those who dwell on the earth. The voice of the great multitude says that the execution of God's justice comes in his judgment of the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. In chapter 14 and verse 8, we saw Babylon the great as a woman who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And in chapter 16 and verse 19, John told us that God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And in chapter 17, verses 1 to 6, we learn that Babylon, the great, is the mother of prostitutes, of earth's abominations. She is drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. She's seated on many waters, and those waters are many nations. And she holds in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And then in chapter 18, and verse 2, an angel again proclaimed the fall of Babylon, the great. It was clear that this spiritual system of evil opposition to God and the Lamb had been intent on world domination to the effect that every unbelieving kingdom and every unbelieving king and every unbelieving citizen intent on opposing God and the Lamb came into her kingdom, drunk on her liquor, delighted by her licentiousness. She was successful. But that success will not stand the test of time. God and God alone will reign supreme. God will not share his glory with another. God will not allow men and women created in his image to be preyed upon without response. Intent on his own glory covering the earth as the waters cover the sea, God will destroy the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. And in doing so, he will cause her to pay for the blood of the saints that she slayed. The great multitude in heaven shouted a word of praise again as they considered the just judgment of God against Babylon. Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Those in heaven are rejoicing in the triumph of God over his enemy and the enemy of his people, recognizing that this is in fact the war to end all wars Babylon will not live again. She has risen and fallen and risen again countless times throughout human history. Babylon is a spiritual system of evil opposition to God, and she has had many lives since, it first, since she first lived in the Garden of Eden. But at the end of days when the Lord God Almighty decrees that the fullness of his wrath has come, and when the work of his judgment is done in full, Babylon will fall a final time, never to rise again. And to ensure that God's people know her witching ways have withered to nothing, the smoke rises from her foundations forever.
The return of the 24 elders and the four living creatures in verse 4 may mean that the voices of those in heaven in verses 1 through 3 are the voices of the redeemed. Or it may mean simply that they are voices of the entirety of the angelic host. And now we are being introduced to two ranks of those angels. The elders and living creatures here in verse 4 and 5 are seen in their typical fashion. They fall down and worship God who is seated on the throne. And their word of praise is amen, hallelujah. To heighten the celebration of God's victory and to underscore the worthiness of his praise. John hears from the throne a voice that may be the voice of the Lord Jesus himself. A voice that says, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. We have prayed, we the people of God have prayed to God for rescue and trial, rest in death and resurrection at the last day. Now it is our work. We who have had our prayers answered to praise the God who fights for his own. Notice that this word that comes from the throne says, Praise, you, praise God, all you his servants, you who fear him small and great. That's contrasted with what we heard at the end of the chapter in the destruction and conquering of those who were aligned against the Lamb of God, those who were great and small. In other words, there's a reminder to us here, brothers and sisters, that our entry into God's kingdom or our judgment and exile from it has nothing to do with our earthly standing. You could be the greatest of kings or the poorest of paupers and dwell in the kingdom of God or be cast into outer darkness. What matters to our eternal salvation is not our standing in this world in terms of our social status, in terms of our financial ability, in terms of our political affiliation, in terms of our family of origin. What matters in terms of our entry into or exile from God's kingdom is how we respond to the sacrifice of Christ. There is one offer of salvation that is made to men and women and boys and girls the world over. And it is an offer of salvation that is in the pure gift of God himself. And he calls all, both great and small, to believe in him. And both great and small can have a place in his kingdom or can be exiled from it. In verse 6, John says, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. Here we're reminded of how loud the presence of heaven is. There is all sorts of raucous praise going on. There is a party being celebrated in the gates of glory. The multitude heeds the instruction of that voice that comes from heaven's throne as it cries out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. We've heard that refrain before, back in chapter 11, where in response to the conquering of the kingdom of God over the kingdom of the world, there was a roar of praise given up to God. The Lord God omnipotent reigns. The multitudes give praise to God. 
they begin to give instruction as they're praising to themselves. There's something that happens when God's people begin to worship and adore and praise. We hear the command. We receive the instruction of God. We know that we should offer up praise to our Lord. But then something happens as we actually do that in practice. We begin to preach to one another. In fact, that's why the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians that we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another as unto the Lord. We're preaching to each other every day when we gather and sing the praises of God. And as we sing praises to God, we inspire in each other and we encourage in each other a consideration of the wonder and glory of God's gracious work on our behalf. The more that we worship and the more that we praise, the more that we value the worth of God himself. When these multitudes in the heavenly realms are worshiping God because a voice has come from the throne instructing them to do so, they then begin to give instruction to one another. They say among themselves, let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. The multitudes encouraged to give praise to God because of his justice in condemning and destroying his enemies now find a reason to positively praise him because his justice in justifying and joining them to himself as his own. They recognize that in the outpouring of the fullness of God's judgment on his enemies, there is now the fulfillment of the long-anticipated union of God with his people. Throughout the Old Testament, we see the prophets describing the relationship of God to his covenant people as like that of a husband to his bride. We remember that the Lord Jesus tells us that marriage is the image, it's the way that we should consider the relationship of him to his church. That is no more clearly seen than in Isaiah chapter 62, verses 4 and 5. There the prophet says, For you shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Have you ever heard the word Hepzibah? You've seen that on a church sign somewhere, Hepzibah Baptist Church. Well, that word Hepzibah is translated, my delight is in her. And I know that you've heard Squire Parsons sing Beulah Land, haven't you? Well, the word Beulah is from Isaiah 62 and verse 4. When the prophet says that one day God's people will no longer be termed forsaken but married, that word for married is Beulah. They will be called a land rejoined to God himself. Indeed, God's people anticipated that in their full restoration after the exile, they would experience union with God himself. Now, if we went back to the 3rd or 4th century before Christ and took a poll on what they thought that would look like, they might have expected that a union with God to come simply in the 
would come simply in the revival of their ethnic descendants returning to their promised land and enjoying their independence from foreign powers. But the reality of the wedding celebration that God anticipates with His people is not just with ethnic Israel, but with every nation, tribe, and tongue of all people who belong to Him by faith. And it is not just in a land that formerly belonged to pagans, but now has been promised to His covenant people, but it is in a land that is not built with human hands, eternal in the heavens. And the union of God with his people is no longer in consideration just of their political dominance over earthly enemies, but it is in terms of their freedom and release from the spiritual oppression and captivity long exercised by Babylon, the kingdom of this world. The marriage between the lamb and his bride will happen at the last day because his bride has made herself ready. Her preparation to marry the Lamb is both her work, John says she has made herself ready, and it is the work of the Lamb. For the next statement John makes is that it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Make no mistake, this is a spiritual preparation John is referring to. It is the active work of the people of God in receipt of and in response to the active work of the Lamb. The lamb has given the bride the ability to be ready, so the bride has made herself ready. It's it's why we sing, are you washed in the blood of the lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they bright as snow? Are you walking daily by your Savior's side? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Do you rest each moment in the crucified? Oh, be washed in the blood of the Lamb. It is God's active work in allowing us to be ready, in making a way for us to be prepared. But it is our active work in receipt of and in response to God's preparation for us by working the works of righteousness as we trust in Him. Two details must be considered as we think about how the bride of the Lamb is clothed with fine linen, which we are told is the righteous deeds of the saints. Look back and remember that in chapter 17 and verse 4, we were given a description of Babylon, the great prostitute. There John said that the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. Decadence drips off of the prostitute. Her allure is seated in the worth of this world. Things are valuable only for a moment, but do not last. Mary and I were watching Antiques Roadshow. Y'all ever watch that? Isn't that good? There's some great stuff on that thing. I I love when they just blow people's minds. You know, somebody comes in and they've got something that, you know, they thought was worthless. And they tell them, it's $100,000. And and Mary could tell you that my refrain is, sell it, sell it. Get the money, boys. Take it while you can. They had a program that we watched the other day, and it was, did grandma lie? Because, you know, all of our grandmothers have handed things down with stories. And so we think they're old and ancient and valuable, but often they're new and worthless. 
And as we were watching, this was a program that was taped, you know, years and years ago. And so they had updated it by giving you the value of these things today. And so many of these things had gone down in their value. Babylon the Great is clothed in the riches of this world that do not last. She is indulgent in luxuries, failing to see that she has no real worth. She is valueless, and her appearance shows it. I can't help but think that so often, so often in our lives, it's those who want to be seen as having wealth who clothe themselves in the name brand, who drive around in fancy cars and who have nice clothing and who seem to look as though they are well off, when in reality it's likely just a show. And it's often those that we least expect who have true treasure. So it is with Babylon the Great. Her value is all in the external, and it doesn't last. Then we must recall chapter 18 and verse 12. We saw last week there that as Babylon the Great was fallen, the sovereigns and the sellers and the shippers were in anguish as they lamented her decline. And as we heard the anguish of the sellers, those merchants of earth who had made a living off of trading goods in and through Babylon, they bemoaned the collapse of the market for fine linen. In both of these instances, we are reminded of how upside down the value system of this world is. And we are encouraged to love that which lasts, namely the righteousness of the Lord Jesus, who clothes himself in splendor and majesty and causes his saints to do the same. God's people have no need to bejewel themselves in the fanciful things of earth because we are clothed in the riches of the Christian life what John calls the righteous deeds of the saints. We have to, of course, remember what the Apostle Paul wrote about the nature of our outward appearance and remember that he encourages women not to adorn themselves with gold and jewels and costly array. Likely there's a cultural element there that these women were going in and they were just festooning themselves with all sorts of things in order to set themselves apart from other women and make themselves appear more exalted. But the enduring principle is this. Paul says you should adorn yourselves with that which matters, true godliness. The thing that we should value, the thing we should work on, the thing that should be in, uh, valuable to us and, and valuable in the eyes of others is the righteous deeds of the saints. John tells us that upon hearing the announcement of this union of the Lamb to his bride, he was instructed to record the fourth beatitude. There are seven beatitudes in the Revelation, and this is the fourth of them. In verse 9, he says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This celebration of the union of God to his people is surely a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 25, verses 5 to 9, where the prophet writes, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. 
We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Revelation 19 and 9 is also surely a fulfillment of the parable of the wedding feast in Luke 14, 7 to 11, and the parable of the great banquet in Luke 14, verses 12 to 24. So the question comes for us as we consider the nature of the end of days, is this a real banquet? Remember, at various points, we've asked ourselves, should we interpret these things literally? And we've said over and again, we should interpret them literally as they were intended to be interpreted, which is to say that John often uses figurative or imaginative or illustrative language to tell us about something that is, in fact, very real. And I think when John describes here the marriage supper of the Lamb, he is talking about something that is very real. What he's talking about is the union of God with his people. What he's talking about is the never-ending, forever relationship that the people of God enjoy with God himself. A celebration, a reunion, a covenant commitment, a, a sort of ongoing party. A full and new life. It is the start of a whole new era of eternity. When John says that blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, he is building upon, in summary, he is building upon Isaiah's prophetic word and the parables of the Lord Jesus. And so if we take careful consideration of Isaiah's prophecy and of the parables of the Lord Jesus, I think what we're to understand is that this is not one moment in the story of human history where God sits down at a grand banquet table and feasts with his own, and then we all get up and go on to the next thing. I think instead we're to see this as symbolic of the reign of God with his people forever. So where does this come in the story of human history? Well, I think what we're to understand is that John's actually introducing something new here. Remember, at various points, John has introduced a concept, and then he's returned to it and talked about it in a different way. I think that's what he's doing here in 19 and 9, as he introduces this idea of the marriage supper of the Lamb. He's telling us about the celebration of the union of God with his people, this great and glorious new era of history when, when God and his people are joined together and never to depart. But he's going to return to this idea of covenant union with God and his people in chapters 21 and in chapter 22. There will be those wondrous words that we hear that a new heaven and a new earth come down from God. And that there is going to be a wiping away of all of our tears and death and sorrow will be no more for the former things have passed away. And we see in chapter 21, verses 6 to 7, that there is this wonderful promise that it, that is all of God's plan and all of God's purpose, all of God's judgment of his enemies and all of God's vindication of his saints, it is done. And then God says in chapter 21, in verse 6, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. See, the marriage supper is a symbol. You've been to weddings. You had a wedding, some of you, right? 
And you think back to what that was like when Mary and I were getting married. Mama said, you know, in our day, did you say this to your kids, any of you? In our day, Mama said, in our day we had punch and cake and nuts. I said, I know, Mother, I know, but that's not my day. And if I had known better, I would have said, Mom, do you just want to write a check? Because we'd love to elope. That would have been far better. I can promise you that's the advice Jack will get. Uh, but as we look back on that, think about our wedding. We had beautiful wedding ceremony. I told Mary, I said, I'm in charge of the ceremony and you're in charge of the celebration afterwards. She said, that's fine. So I planned the ceremony. It was as long a Baptist service. It was as high church as we could get. Uh, 45 minute long service in the sanctuary where they didn't turn on the air conditioner or the lights. It was dark and it was hot. We got through it. We went to the reception, had a meal, had a dance, all this jazz. It was great and glorious. The 250 people who were there celebrating with us, when they left the party, they just went back to their lives like normal. But when Mary and I left, we were forever changed. The marriage supper of the Lamb is a symbol that we are forever changed at this point. When God binds himself to his people, when once and for all there's no separation, no distinction, no gap, just communion, we will forever be changed. The party will never end. The celebration will be ongoing. There will be a forever cause for us to rejoice because we will now be once and for all the people of God. John can hardly take these things in. He says in verse number 10, I felt, uh, or verse number nine, he said, the angel said to me, these are true words of God. Probably that's an affirmation that these things are so great and so far-fetched and so fanciful. It's hard to wonder. It's hard to consider that these things are actually true. And so the angel says, hey, these things are true. This is the word of the Lord. You can believe it. And John is so overwhelmed by this that he says, I fell down at his feet to worship him. Now look, this is the wrong move, but you have to appreciate the honesty, don't you? There's a warning here for us, brothers and sisters. And the warning is that idolatry is always at hand in this world. We have to be vigilant. We must be careful. We must always be watchful on ourselves and on the lives of others lest we give our devotion and our adoration to things that don't actually matter. John falls down at this angel's feet and begins to worship. And the angel says, get off your knees and stand up. I'm just like you and your brothers. I'm just a servant of God. The only one who is worthy of worship is God himself. As we consider our lives of faith, one of the things that we should regularly ask ourselves, am I worshiping God? Is my life of service and devotion to the church an act of worship or is it something to promote myself? Is my stewardship of my family life something to, to glory in for my own, my own value and my own worth and the way I can contribute to the lives of my children or grandchildren or am I actually doing this to bring glory to God? As I look around at the home that I've built and care for the property that I've been able to purchase, do I do these things so that I can take pride and 
People in my community will say, you have a fine house and a fine piece of land. Or do, do I do these things in stewardship of God who owns the whole earth? Do I see my home as a place of hospitality and welcome? The things that God has given to us should be ways that we turn back praise to him. And if we find that we're turning the praise inward or giving it to someone else, then it's a call for us to repent. John says in verse 11, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Here John reminds us of the other side of justice. We've been hearing about God uniting us to himself, God vindicating the cause of his faithful ones. We've been hearing about this wonderful communion that God's people will enjoy with him forever. But that communion comes at a cost. It first came at the cost of our Savior's life. And at the end of days, it will come at the cost of all those who dwell on the earth, those who are wicked. What John is opening up to us here is another description of, of the battle of Armageddon. You say, well, that's not written here, preacher. That's correct. It's not written here. But remember that John often introduces something and then he talks about it again, but in a different way. Well, in chapter 16, John introduced the battle of Armageddon. When we saw the sixth bowl being poured out, we were told about the preparations that were being made for this great battle. Remember that the Euphrates River dried up and the kings of the east were allowed to walk across it to align with the beast and to prepare for this great battle that was going to occur. Well, now we come to that actual battle. Now we see it being fought. What's happening is that those who are unbelieving, those who dwell on the earth, those who have been a part of Babylon the Great, those who have followed uh, the dragon, those who have followed the beast, who've taken his mark, those who oppose God and God's people, they are now going to align themselves for one great battle. I think what we're to understand here is that the end of days has come. All of the judgments have been poured out. The seven bold judgments are the last judgments of God When the seventh bowl judgment is poured out, that's it. It says in Revelation 16, when that seventh bowl is poured out, it is done. This is the finality. And this ushers in all of the things that take place after this until the final judgment and the reigning of God with his people in a new heaven and a new earth. And so what we come to here in Revelation 19 is that God has raised up, I believe at this point, he's raised up his church, the saints, those who died in the Lord, the people of God, those who remained on the earth at the time of his coming have been caught up with him in the air forever to be with the Lord. And now he is descending to affect two things. The first thing he will affect is the destruction of all those who come to the battle of Armageddon. And then he will affect a millennial reign, a thousand year time, a period of peace on the earth in which we will see that the dragon, Satan himself, is locked up. But it starts with the entry of the Savior. John says in 19 and 11, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True. 
And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. There's a reminder to us here of the justness of the judgment of God. There are all sorts of wicked and woeful judges in our world who operate from a world system bent on their own pleasure or their own delight or their own satisfaction or their own joy, but they do not actually work for justice. And John says here, this one who will affect judgment at the end of days does so in righteousness. That means he does it in the right way according to the standard in fulfillment with his purpose and work which is in fact the purpose and work of his father he says in verse 12 that his eyes are like flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself There's a reminder to us here of the image of the beast. You may remember that the beast had seven heads and the beast had upon one of those heads ten diadems or crowns. We were given there to see authority or power or sovereignty, a limited sovereignty of the beast in this world. Now we're contrasting the Lord Jesus, our great and final king, with the beast of the earth with the one who ruled and reigned over the system of Babylon, the the kingdom of this world that was opposed to God in his will and way. And so John tells us that this one who comes out of heaven, the one who is faithful and true and who judges in righteousness as he makes war, his eyes are flames of fire, which is to say there's nothing that gets past him. His sight is penetrating and piercing and all-encompassing, and he is purifying in his sight. He doesn't see things in a wicked way, but in a pure way. And as he is judging and making war, he does so with authority. That authority is, is, is symbolized by the crowns that are on his head, the diadems, and it is symbolized by the fact that he has written upon him a name that no one knows but himself. The fact that he's the only one who knows this name means that he is sovereign. There is no one more powerful than he. John then says in verse 13, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. It's not his own blood. It's not the blood of his saints. It's the blood of the wicked. The blood that stains the robe of my Savior and yours is the blood of those who have dared to oppose him and who he slays by his own power. What John's trying to do is evoke for us a recognition of his dominion, his sovereignty, his authority. No one escapes his justice. John then tells you, he says that he is called by this name, the word of God. Don't you think John here is going back to his own experience of writing a story about Jesus, what he's done in his gospel? And John told us there in John chapter 1, the prologue to his gospel, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John has long seen Jesus as the word, as the, as the logos of God. 
God's speaking, God's word to his people is embodied. It is, it is flesh. It is personified in the person of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And John reminds us of that, that this word, this word that was in the beginning, this word that was God and was with God, this word that has been authoritative and commanding and creating, this word is redeeming and it is judging at the end of days. This is the same authoritative voice that creation has had to yield to since its very inception. John says in verse 14, the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. The fact that he says the armies of heaven are arrayed in fine linen, I believe is indicative of the fact that these are the people of God. They're not just angelic armies. Some people would see here that these are just angelic armies and that we're we, the people of God, are not involved in this battle. But remember that he said the bride was clothed in fine linen, white, uh, bright and pure, he said earlier. So I believe the fact that we see this coming back is, is to say that it's, it is the people of God who make up the armies of heaven. We're arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, and following him on white horses. He says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Of course, we can't read that without recalling the words of Psalm 2, right? You remember that Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. It points us forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus, and it reminds us of his authority, his sovereignty, his power over all the nations of earth. The rod of iron, this is not, this is not the staff of a shepherd. The staff of a shepherd has a crook. The staff of a shepherd is meant to correct. It is meant to rescue. It is meant to save. The rod of iron is a club. It is meant to destroy. It is meant to to condemn. The shepherd steps in with his rod to beat off the wolves. Jesus is stepping in at the last day with a rod of iron to beat off the wolves that have dared to rise up against his sheep. John says that he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. We were first introduced to this wine press in chapter 14. At the end of chapter 14, we were told that this was going to happen, that God was going to crush those who dared to rise up against him, that those who dwell on the earth would be trodden out beneath his feet. You remember there, John gave us this picture of how high the blood would be. Remember, he said it would cover a great length and it would be as deep. He said it would be a length as long as the nation of Israel itself, 180 miles. And it would be as deep as a horse's bridle, four and a half, five feet, something like that. It is a great sea of blood. And it will be there because Jesus will crush his enemies beneath his feet. Then John says in verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He has a name that is personal, one that nobody knows. He's called the Word of God. But when we see this inscription upon him, it's a declaration of his authority. We already saw this hinted at in chapter 11 in verses 15 to 19. And now we see it in full 
glory. This is the one who conquers. This is the one who overcomes. This is the one who is victorious. There is no greater king. There is no greater Lord. He is the only sovereign. So John describes this image of Jesus coming with his armies. And then John tells us what they're coming for. He says in verse 17 of chapter 19, I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice he called all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come gather for the great supper of God. We have seen the marriage supper of the Lamb. A union of God with his people, a celebration that never ends, a sort of fantastic party to celebrate that the bride of the Lamb and the Lamb have been made one. But now we see that contrasted by the great supper of God. This is no celebration. This is garbage day. This is the day that God is taking out the trash. This is the day that God is punishing in full measure, those who have dared to rise against him. All the birds of prey, all the vultures are called to come into this moment, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. John says in verse 19, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. John said back in chapter 16 and verse 12 that the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east and I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. He says in verse 16 that they assembled at a place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now we've gotten there. In chapter 16, they were just preparing for war. Now the war has come. In chapter 16, they were making ready for battle. Now the battle's here. John tells us in just a brief word that the angel flies overhead, stands in the sun, calls out to all the birds of prey and says, get ready, gather together for the supper of God. When he says it's the supper of God, he is reminding us of who's in charge, of the nature of the authority, the one who's going to win. The outcome is already determined. The victory is already settled. God is going to be in control and God will affect judgment in this moment. And then John says, here's what the battle looked like. And listen, you, you've read about this, right? You've heard about this. You've sat, and I know some of you, you've sat home like I've sat home, and you've watched John Hagee and Hal Lindsey and, and Jimmy DeYoung talk about the great battle of Armageddon, and you've read Left Behind and Tim LaHaye and all the, maybe some of you go back and you've read Late Great Planet Earth. It's not as late and great as it once was predicted to be, but you read Late Great Planet Earth. And you've got this thing about Armageddon in your mind. And then, my goodness, the movies, they've made it even worse. They've got all kinds of concepts and dreams of what this great battle might be like. But if you go back to the book, well, friend, there's no battle at all, is there? 
It's over before it even begins. Look there in verse 19. John says, I saw the armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Jesus is riding upon a white horse, a contrast to the whore of Babylon that rides upon a scarlet beast. Jesus is, is, is accompanied by all the host of heaven who is a contrast to Babylon who is accompanied by all the pagan kings of earth. They assemble for battle. And then it says in verse 20, the beast was captured. Who is this beast? Well, it's the beast of the sea or the abyss. It's also called the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness. Remember, we've, we've said all these things mean the same thing. The Antichrist gets captured, and with it, the false prophet, we saw that that was also the beast of the earth, right? The second beast of chapter 13 who in its presence had done signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. So they all assemble. All the kings of earth and all their armies have come together. Those from the east and those from the west have come together under the authority of the dragon, the beast from the abyss, and the false prophet. Satan is the dragon. Antichrist is the beast from the abyss. The false prophet is the beast of the earth. Everybody is there ready for battle against Jesus and his army. And the first thing that happens is that their leaders get taken out. The beast of the abyss, who is the Antichrist, and the false prophet, who is the beast of the earth, they are captured... And John says, here's what happens to them in verse 20. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. So, number one, what do we take out of that? Number one, well, I think what we should understand is these are real people. The Antichrist is a real person. Now, there have been many Antichrists. You read John's epistles, 1 John and 2 John. You see there's a spirit of Antichrist that pervades the age. There are all sorts of people who oppose Jesus. But at the end of days, there will be one final person who embraces this spirit of Antichrist, who is the final appearance of the man of lawlessness, who is the beast of the abyss or the beast of the sea. And when he is thrown into the lake of fire with the false prophet, he will be thrown in alive. This is eternal conscious torment. The idea, number one, the idea that somehow God is a universalist in his offer of salvation so that no one experiences condemnation is a lie. It's a heresy. But further, the idea that God annihilates those who are condemned so that they don't have to suffer forever is also a lie and a heresy. There is a waiting for all those who oppose God and the Lamb, both those who dwell on the earth, physical human beings, and the spiritual beings that have opposed God. There is a waiting eternal conscious torment in a place called the lake of fire. John says these two, verse 20, were thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And then he says in verse 21, the rest were slain by the sword that came out of the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. You see, once the beast, the Antichrist, and once the false prophet, the beast of the earth, once they're captured, the things they've given power to, which are the kings of earth, come crumbling down. 
they are no match for Jesus. The very sword that comes out of his mouth, his authority, his word, his power, his dominion, his control, slays them in one fell swoop. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Is that the end of the story for them? It is not. That's the end of the story for their earthly existence. The rest of the book says that there awaits for them a second resurrection, one that leads to eternal condemnation. See, here's what's going to happen. At the end of human history, God will pour out judgment upon the world in increasing measure. First, the seal judgments. The seal judgments affect a fourth of Earth's population. Then as we get to what I think is that period of intense suffering or trial, what is called in chapter 6, the Great Tribulation, when we get to that period, I think that is inaugurated by the abomination of desolation, the appearing of the man of lawlessness. What Paul talks about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, what Jesus talked about in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, Five and in uh, Mark 13, or Matthew 24 and in Mark 13. When that period of tribulation begins, it will begin first with a set of judgments uh, that are the trumpet judgments. We read about those in chapters 8 and 9. The trumpet judgments affect a third of the earth. They are intended to cause the unbelieving world to turn away from their sin and to turn toward Jesus in faith, but it doesn't happen. The unbelievers continue. They won't give up their idolatry. They continue to worship things that are false. They take the mark of the beast. They're glad to be a part of Babylon. They're glad to give themselves over to the system of this world. And as the tribulation carries on, the people of God are suffering and largely martyred during that period. At the end of that tribulation period, just before the great day of God the Almighty, there will be the outpouring of the judgments of the bowls in chapter 16, which affect the entirety of the earth. And when those bowl judgments are poured out, there will be the preparation for this battle. And when the last judgment is poured out, the seventh bowl is poured out at the end of chapter 16, what do we hear but that statement, it is done. God has had enough. God has dealt with his people. He's been long-suffering toward the unbelieving. He's given every opportunity, but instead of unbelievers of earth turning toward him in faith, they have instead cursed him because of the suffering they endure. And so will come the great day of the Lord when Jesus comes again, appearing in the clouds for his people, causing all the dead in Christ to rise and those who remain to gather up with him. And then he will split the heavens and come as a conquering hero on a white horse with the armies of heaven, all of his people riding to this assembly in the plain of Megiddo in order to fight this battle. And it will be over as quickly as it begins. Because he will bind the false prophet and he will bind the beast of the sea, the Antichrist, and throw them into the lake of fire. And then with his very sword, he will slay all the unbelieving of earth who gathered at that battle. And those unbelievers who gathered at that battle, who were slain, their bodies will be consumed in the great supper of God. And their souls will go down to their death and await the second resurrection, the one that leads to eternal judgment. For when that second resurrection happens, their names will not be found in the Lamb's book of life. And so the books of their deeds will be searched, 
and they will be found lacking. And so with the dragon and with this old heaven and old earth, they will be thrown into the lake of fire for eternal conscious torment. You would not and I would not wish that on anyone. Not because, not because we think anyone of earth is righteous, but because we know the grandeur and glory of God's grace. And if God's grace is glorious and grand, then fierce and woeful are his judgment and condemnation. Just as wonderful and powerful and majestic as his love and kindness and mercy toward those who love him and fear him, that is how immense and intense are his judgments against those who do not obey or fear him. We would not want anyone to have to stand beneath the righteous weight of God's justice in condemnation. So when we read this passage, when we think about these two feasts, when we look forward in joy to the marriage supper of the Lamb, and when we dread the great supper of God, number one, it ought to make us grateful. It ought to cause us to fall down in worship of our God who has saved us by grace through faith. We ought to be thankful that a way has been made for us to be clothed in the fine, pure, white linen that God accords to those who love him. But it also ought to stir in our hearts a desire to see those who are unbelieving come to know Jesus. No one, no one escapes this judgment. You're either invited to the marriage supper or you're gorged upon at the supper of God. Let's open our eyes to the lost people around us and bid them to find salvation while it may be found. Father, we're thankful. We're thankful for the grace that you've given in your son. We're thankful for the wonder of his mercy and his kindness and his love that are never failing and always true. We're thankful that you have made a way for us to be clothed in fine linen, white and pure and brilliant. It is not our own doing. It is the work of your Son. But we receive it by faith and we respond to it through our righteous deeds. And we look forward in joyous anticipation to that day when we are with you forever. When we celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb. But, oh God, we know that for us to be joined with you means that there will be those who are condemned apart from you. And so we plead, merciful Lord, that you would help us to be faithful witnesses to our city and to the nations so that those who are lost and undone in their sin would hear the glorious hope of the gospel and call upon you in faith. Lord, we pray especially over our Vacation Bible School the other schools that are being held in our city, efforts by our congregation and others to share this wonderful news. Lord, would you touch the heart of every child and every family
let them see this is this is more than a free babysitting service. It's more than a fun time. That this has eternal implications. May they hear clearly the gospel. And may they call upon your name in faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.